Well, tonight we're coming to the uh, final conclusion to the series of messages dealing with the end times, uh, which we entitled, What the World is Coming to. And we're going to talk about the post-tribulation events. And many people tend to think Christ comes back, then the story ends. But actually, there's quite a bit of event, quite a several events that take place and uh, over an extended period of time. And we're going to be looking at that this evening. But let's begin with a word of prayer, and we'll get into this tonight. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all that it reveals. And I pray, God, that as we look at these end events, that it would stir within us the hope of our calling. That as we've said over and over again, that we are not created for time. We are created for eternity, Lord. And uh, we look forward to that. And we pray, God, that uh, you would just bring a greater sense of understanding and reality to our lives because of the time that we spend in your word this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to begin by uh, addressing some terms that uh, tend to confuse a lot of people. In chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, um, in the beginning of the 13th verse, John refers to, he says, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have these three particular terms. We'd have uh, death and Hades, which essentially is uh, Hades, or death is the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the grave or the place of the dead. Uh, Hades is often translated hell, and it means essentially the same thing. And then we have the term the lake of fire. What exactly is that? And last of all, what is the second death? We're just simply told, or most importantly, the second death is not the death that you want to participate because it's what gives you entry into the lake of fire. So when the Bible speaks about death, it speaks about two kinds of death. There is, first of all, physical death, what we think the biological, temporary being stops functioning and existing. In other words, generally speaking, if you stop breathing, you will stop living. And uh, Genesis 3.19 tells us that this is the judgment, the consequence of sin, that when Adam and Eve transgressed, immediately death became active within uh, the human organism. And he told them as a consequence of their action, he said, you will return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And as a consequence, we know that this is the outward evidence of man's sinful condition is the fact that death exists upon the planet. But the death that's spoken of here is not this. The death it's spoken of, I would term basically soul death. And by soul death, I don't mean that the soul dies because biblically, there, I don't think there's any uh, reason why we should assume that the soul ever perishes. The soul is an eternal element or aspect of who we are. And whatever condition your soul is when it goes, when it leaves your body through physical death is the condition it will be forever because it moves from the world of time into the eternal timelessness. Many times we, you know, uh, sometimes uh, think about what would it be like to exist without time. And one of the things that would disappear is change. That's why in many ways I'm thankful that I was born into a time world because it gave me an opportunity to repent of my sin and experience the change that comes from being born again of the Holy Spirit. But it's important, obviously, to understand that unless you're born again, your soul dies and goes into death eternally. And in fact, where it goes is this place called the lake of fire. Before Jesus' resurrection, when someone died, they would go into what he refers to here as death and Hades. As I said, the word death here is Sheol, that's the Hebrew, Hades is the Greek. In English, we often translate it as hell. And we get confused sometimes because there's another term that is used by Jesus that also is frequently translated simply as hell, but there's a distinction that needs to be made between Hades and the hell that Jesus most frequently spoke of. But when someone died, they would go into one of two states of death. 
The first was referred to by the Jews as Abraham's bosom. In other words, if you died in faith, you went into this place of comfort that's based upon a faith relationship with God. So Abraham, who is the father of faith, became the term that they used to describe the condition of somebody who died, even though they weren't completed in their spiritual journey, they knew that one day the Messiah would come and rescue them from death. But those who died outside of faith went into a place referred to as outer darkness. It's a place where people died, but there was a fearful watching, or as the, Matt, Jesus put it in Matthew 8, 12, he said that they're, they're cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Hebrews 10, 27, it describes it, a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So that when we think about people who die today without Jesus, they don't go into the lake of fire that we just read. They go into the place called death. But their death is a hopeless death. So what about those who, who died before uh, Jesus came? Or, or excuse me, who, who have died in Christ after Jesus' resurrection? Well, we're told that they're caught up to be in the presence of the Lord. In fact, we'll look at that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. It says, therefore, he says... When he ascended on high, speaking of Christ's resurrection, he led captive captives and gave gifts to men, which would be the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, he says, now this, he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So essentially what he is referring to is that when Jesus died, he went into death. And some of you may have heard or read where it says Jesus went into hell, and you think, well, did Jesus get judged and damned for mankind's sin? No, he went into the place of death, and he led those who had died in faith, those who were in Abraham's bosom, out of death and took them on high to be for with the Lord forevermore. Their souls were in the presence of God, still awaiting the resurrection of the body, but nonetheless, they're in the presence of the Lord. That's why later on, Paul would write to the Corinthians, he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, referring specifically to those who died having been born again or in faith in Jesus. But those who died outside of Christ are still at this point in this place of death, Final judgment is still awaiting them in the future and they exist in the torment, the wailing and the gnashing and the outer darkness of that place looking to the day in which they will be cast into the lake of fire and will experience uh, an eternity that is beyond our ability to describe. It's just something that is so horrific that it refers to as the lake of burning fire or the fiery burning sulfur. Now, why does he use the term sulfur? Well, sulfur burns at 3,000 degrees, uh, which is basically really hot. <laughs> Everything evaporates at that particular temperature. But the idea is that most painful thing that we can experience as in our physical man is burning. When a body is burnt, it basically damages the nerve endings and there's no way to stop the pain signals from reaching the brain. That's why oftentimes we see people who are suffering from burns and they can medicate them almost to the point of killing them because there's no way of really dulling that pain completely. So the idea of a place being a lake of fire or sulfur burning is the idea that it's a pain that can't even be described by any kind of physical experience that you or I might have in this world. The closest they can come is saying it's the kind of pain that someone who has been burned severely would go through. So it's, in a way, God's way of saying, be warned about this. When Jesus talked about hell, as it's translated in our English versions, he most often was referring to the lake of fire. He used the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is really a corruption of a Hebrew phrase called Gai Hinnom. Gai is the word which means valley, and Hinnom isn't actually a valley, valley on the uh, outskirts or the edge of Jerusalem. And the valley of Hinnom 
became in Jesus' day the Jerusalem city dump. It was a place where everything that was unclean was put. Uh, it's where dead animals and refuse of all kinds were taken and burned. And that's also where the lepers were forced to live because they weren't allowed to come into any of the areas where people were clean lived. They were, they were considered to be perpetually unclean. In other words, in the mind of the, of the Jews, this was the most horrible circumstance a person in this life could ever face. And there was a constant burning, a fire that was always there. It was a place of continuous suffering and hardship. And so this worked its way into the Hebrew language when Greek became uh, a common uh, way of writing and communicating. And they took this word Gehenom and made it into Gehenna, and it became a synonym for the lake of fire, a place of eternal burning. And so it's Jesus who speaks some 11 times in the gospel. He warns about the, those who are rejecting him are going to find ultimately they're going to end up there. Not simply that they would just die, as some people saying, well, you just go into nothingness, or you simply are annihilated and you cease existing. It's a place that's described by the words forever and everlasting and never ending. And it's a place of torment that's forever, everlasting and never ending. And it's about as far as we can go in verbal communication in just about any language to describe a fate that anybody who understands the reality of these things to any degree would do everything in their power to avoid. And the only way that you can avoid ending up there is by giving your life to Jesus Christ. So... It's interesting because Jesus, as he described it as a, in Matthew 13, as being the furnace of fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, this lake of fire is also referred to as the second death, and we might even add the final death, that when you go in there, you're, you're locked into that condition for all of eternity since time is no longer moving forward. It's funny because, in, or say interesting to me, because in Revelation chapter 19, the first residents of the lake of fire are the, the beast or the antichrist and the false prophet. In fact, in verse 20 of chapter 19 of Revelation, it says the beast and the false prophet, the two of them, it says, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, eventually, we're told that Satan and those who have rejected Christ will also be cast into the lake of fire. But that's not the immediate fate of Satan because God is not done using him yet for his purpose. Because after the second coming, we find in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 1, that Satan is bound. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, it's the Greek word abuso, and holding in his hand a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. Now, here we have another term yet. He's not in death per se, but he's in this place called the abyss or the abuso. The term literally means a, a bottomless pit. And it was often used by the Greeks to describe a place of really kind of animated suspension, if you will, a place where you're neither alive or dead, you're just held in captivity. One of the things that I try to explain to people when talking about the biblical description of hell is the fact that it is the aloneness that may be the worst part of it. In other words, many people say, well, I, you know, I've heard people uh, quip sometimes by saying, well, I, when I die, I'm going to go to hell so I can be with all of my friends. And I like to point out to them, well, the problem with that reasoning is you're not with your friends. Oh, they're there too, but you're not going to be enjoying their company. You're not going to even experience their company. You have one of the worst things you can experience, total, complete, absolute isolation and deprivation of any kind of sensory experience or stimulation. We have all these kind of pictures that have developed over the years of people gorging themselves on a lifestyle or, uh, of one nature or another. There is no lifestyle. There is no experience. There's just this, ten, this torment of being in this place, knowing that there is yet something that is awaiting me that's far worse than I can even describe in, in, in hell itself. 
And so it is that we find that he is thrown into the obuso, which nobody knows exactly where it is because it exists in a dimension of reality outside of our ability to sense or experience. Now, that may sound strange to you, but you understand that we have uh, dimensions of reality that we can experience. I mean, we have, we have time, we have space, and things of that nature. But physicists believe, have said that there may be as many as 13 different dimensions of reality, and we're only able to sense or experience a few of them. So that when we read about after Jesus' resurrection, that they're sitting in the upper room, and then all of a sudden Jesus appears, Jesus didn't have to come from some other space to enter into that space, but rather he exists, he was able to penetrate all the dimensions of reality, and he can be there and yet not be seen because he's out of our reality. Now, you may be lost at this point. Let me try to illustrate what I'm talking about. If you and I lived in a two-dimensional reality, say we just had height and or we just had length and depth, and we could put a, a pencil on the ground, and if you were to step over the top of that pencil to the eyes of the beholder who only see in two dimensions, you would disappear. You would actually be there, but when you went up into elevation, you would stop existing, and when you came back down, suddenly you would reappear. And what the physicists speculate, and they believe that they can illustrate, I don't know how, that there are, at least mathematically it's provable, many dimensions of reality beyond our, our knowing. And God exists in all of those. Jesus exists in all of those. And when we leave this planet, we become aware of all those dimensions. That's why when we read things, for example, in Ephesians 6, where he says, you know, uh, in, in first, 2 Corinthians 10, where we don't battle against flesh and blood, but we battle against spiritual forces and heavenly places, that these unseen dimensions and dominions, that if our eyes were able to see into all dimensions, we would probably see our lives being targeted by demonic forces and, and angelic beings walking around protecting us and the Holy Spirit moving. It would become all visible to us. But right now, we accept it by faith because it's not completely visible to us. So essentially, that's the reality that we can't tap into at, in, this, in the particular confines of our present being. So again, when the second coming happens, there are a series of at least six different events that take place. The first, which is the binding of Satan followed by a second one spoken of in chapter 20 of Revelation, which I refer to simply as the resurrection of the tribulation saints. We've talked about people who believe during the great tribulation and who come to faith because of the witness, uh, testimony of the two witnesses, uh, even very possibly the angels we talked about flying through heaven preaching the everlasting gospel. Well, John goes on to say, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. Now one thing we understand is that most Christians die without being beheaded or die as a consequence of being beheaded. And, but the point is that those who come to faith apparently through the great tribulation do so at a very high cost. They enter into martyrdom and are executed by having their heads removed. And it says because they were beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and that they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or in their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then it adds the rest of the dead, that's speaking of those who have died outside of Christ, did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the second thing we find is the resurrection of those martyrs who perish as a consequence of their faith during the great tribulation. Which brings me to the third event that they pass through, and that is the promise that's given by Paul that all Israel in the last days will be saved. Now, how in the world does this all take place? Well, remember how Jesus counseled Israel in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, 
And just to remind you what the abomination of desolation is, it's when in the very middle of the seven-year tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year point, the temple has been rebuilt and, this, and, and the beast puts his image and an image of the dragon in the temple and commands the world to worship him as being God. And he says, when you see that betrayal, and think about what the betrayal would be like. Many of these Jews in, in good faith have worked and labored and spent and invested to rebuild the temple with the idea that they'd be able to worship God according to the regulations and rituals of the Old Testament given by Moses. Suddenly, before they can even enact that, they are betrayed and Satan has taken over. And that's where Jesus said, when you see that, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and he says, whoever reads this, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, this is part of the reason we know that he's talking about talking to the Jews. You which are in Judea, who are in the, back in the land of Israel, flee to the mountains, and he goes on to instruct them to get out of town. Um, this happens in conjunction with the promise that Paul gave in 11 cha Romans chapter 11, verse 25, when he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles had come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So that the fullness of time is when we're told in Luke 21, when Jerusalem is no longer trodden down to the Gentiles, the fullness of the end of times has come. Well, it's interesting because the, the temple is essentially trodden by Gentiles all the way up to the time of the end of the tribulation and the second coming. Now, I know that there has been teachings uh, for years that in 1967, when Israel took back Jerusalem, that that prophecy had been fulfilled. But having been to Israel on numerous occasions, Jerusalem many, many times, one thing I can tell you for certain, the place is still trodden down by Gentiles. And I'm not just talking about tourists. The very Temple Mount itself is under the control of the Muslims, the Arab walk, who are Gentiles in the fullest sense. And much of the city is occupied. You have the, you have the Ar Armenian quarter, you have the Christian quarter, and you have the Arab quarter, which actually makes up about half of the old city. So as a consequence, the city and the Temple Mount still, still are trodden down by the Gentiles. That doesn't get fulfilled or come to an end until actually Christ returns. So here the Jews are, are moving towards that eventual goal, but suddenly they are betrayed, and he says they don't get saved until the city is no longer under the control of Gentiles. When does that happen? Well, that happens when Christ comes up and sets his millennial kingdom. So... We're sitting there going, okay, now I'm really confused. All Israel is going to be saved, but you're telling me that they're not going to be saved until after Christ returns to the second coming. How is that going to happen? How are they going to miss it? Well, it's, here again, this is where it gets uh, interesting. Because in Daniel chapter 12, he ends his prophecy by making this statement about Israel. He says, from that time, talking about the abomination of desolation that causes desolation to set up, the time that the abomination of desolation is set up in the middle of the tribulation, there will be 1,290 days. Now, 1,290 days is three and a half years. By the Jews cal calculated with a 360-day, not a 365-calendar year. So it's, it's basically three and a half years. So he says from the time that abomination happens, there's this period of three and a half years. And then he says, blessed is the one who waits and reaches, waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Now, what's the difference between 1,290 and 1,335? It's a period of 45 days. And you and I look at that and go, what? <laughs> what do you mean 45 days? It's 45 days till Christ comes. There'll be 45 days after Christ comes. What happens in those 45 days? Well, Zechariah the prophet supplies us with the answer. In chapter 12 and 13, he makes this statement. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And then get this. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, 
And they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. And on that day, he says, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Undoubtedly, this is what Paul was referring to when he said in the end that all Israel would be saved. Now, if you press me for more specific details, I'm going to plead truthfully that I don't have them. <laughs> I don't know how this works, but it seems to fit together uh, in, in a very interesting way. That Christ comes back and there's this 45 days where essentially he's taking care of business. And this isn't the only business he takes care of. It's just maybe the first one. I'm not even completely sure of the order. But he comes to the Jews who have fled because here there's their dilemma. They want to worship the God of Israel. They know that the Antichrist is a liar. They hear this presentation of God of Christ. They've got 144,000 witnesses who gave their life to Jesus and they're caught up to be with the Lord. The two witnesses are executed. Angels are flying through heaven and they're in hiding. And not only are they betrayed, but they're miraculously preserved and protected during this time in which they flee. And somewhere in those, that 45-day period, the Lord comes to them and they recognize him as the Savior that they rejected, him whom they have pierced, and they come to faith believing in him. Something else that happens during that 45-day period, I believe, is spoken of in verse 4 of chapter 20 of Revelation as well. He says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. These people are in a position to judge angels and judge nations. Who are these judges who have been given authority? Well, Paul supplies us with an interesting hint. In Ephesians 2, 6, he says, And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And he says, again, in, in chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, if you've ever read that, you know, many times people read it and go, Huh? And then go on. But this is one of the places where I think that we are those authorities. We live and reign with Christ after his coming. We return with him. And we are there. One of the first things we are given to do is to judge angels and to be part of the judgment of the nations. It's interesting, when you think about nations being judged, well, well, let me first talk about the angels before I get ahead of myself, because who are the angels? Well, they are undoubtedly the fallen, rebellious angels who have led men and nations astray. It's interesting how that in Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel is praying and fasting to know what God's will is for his people in the last days, that after three weeks of fasting, 21 days, Michael the archangel suddenly appears to him, and it's interesting his explanation why Daniel had to fast 21 days. He says, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days." Persia was the dominant world power, and the prince that he is referring to, we believe, is a demonic angel. In other words, and I don't want to trouble you too much, but great nations are not great just because of themselves. I've made reference to before about people like Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan and all these world conquerors or would-be world conquerors, that these men who operate far beyond their pay grade... I mean, when you think about Adolf Hitler, who he was, I mean, he was, a, he was a, a failure at about everything he ever tried. And yet suddenly he is catapulted to be one of the most powerful and influential men of the world until his ultimate demise. Where did that power and that force come? Many, many people who were close to those events said that there was an empowering to him that was not human. And I think it's demonic. I think the same prince of Persia was also the prince of the Rhineland. He was the prince of the Third Reich. That there was a spiritual force, as we talked about, that spirit of Antichrist that is seeking to fulfill and move things to the end that Satan desires. 
And this is the same power that is resisting Michael from coming and bringing this revelation to Daniel the prophet. So we know that those angels like the prince of Persia or the prince of the Third Reich and all of the demons that are wandering around, which I personally believe are fallen angels. Some people believe differently, but I, most people believe that uh, fallen angels are the demons that are active in the world. They will be judged and we will be in the position of passing judgment on them. But secondly, there are the nations of the earth that survive through the tribulation period and it says in we know that there are such because Zechariah says in chapter 14 verse 16 the following he says the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king the Lord Almighty and to celebrate the feasts of tabernacles and if any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. So that there are people who actually survive the great tribulation without giving their life to Christ, but also not submitting themselves to the mark of the beast. Again, there are some who suggest that people can have the mark of the beast and get saved. I don't read the scriptures that way, but it's certainly a, a question that we can debate. I certainly wouldn't want to be betting my odds on that possibility. But it says again in Matthew 25, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in his heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. So there's some kind of national entities that are brought into judgment and uh, it refers not nations not just in this idea of uh, political boundaries, but nations of people, tribes, languages, nations of people who survive and are upon the earth. And the only basis that we know that they're going to be judged is how they treated the Jews, how they treated Israel, the apple of God's eye. Because he says in, in, in Matthew 25, he goes on to say, and he will separate the people one from another as a, separ as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I needed clothes, I was sick, I was in prison. I'm, I'm abbreviating here. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, oftentimes I've heard... Matthew 25 being quoted as a reason why Christians should engage in benevolent and charitable activities. And I'm certainly not arguing that we should be benevolent and charitable. In fact, you know, John says very simply in his first letter that if you see somebody who is suffering without food and hardship and to ignore them, you basically have to ignore the love of God and behave contrary to the will of God. And that's not my point. But my point is this, that in the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the treatment of Israel, the apple of his eye, the basically the ones around which all uh, biblical redemption and prophecy revolves, uh, since we always have to keep in mind that Jesus himself was a Jew um, and born into the Jewish world. But essentially, he says that they will be judged based upon their treatment. Now, the danger is that if that's not the case, what people do end up doing is reading, in, reading kind of a works salvation. In other words, if I do this, I get to go to heaven, and if I don't do this, I don't get to go to heaven. So that's one of the problems with simply seeing this as an exhortation towards charitable behavior, because he says, on this matter, your eternity hinges. So that there are those who survive the tribulation, uh, I believe don't receive the mark of the beast, but at the same time, they are allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom and have an opportunity to be saved again. Many times people wonder, why does the millennium happen anyway? And I believe it happens because God is using every effort to save as many people as he possibly can. 
He's giving men multiple opportunities to be redeemed. And that's why he is going to allow so many people who are not born again believers in Jesus to enter into the millennia to have yet one more opportunity. The fifth thing that we find happening during the millennium is that a temple is built. In fact, Ezekiel describes this temple in chapters 40 through 48 of his prophecy. And some people mistakenly say, well, this is the temple that the Jews will build or the Antichrist will build with the Jews in the last days. Um, but the physical dimensions of the temple that Ezekiel describes are so far beyond what the geographical space of the Temple Mount today would allow that it couldn't be the same temple. But it's also different in a number of regards. Not only is it much larger, but it varies in the pattern. And there's no wall of separation. In other words, the, there was a soric, it's called, it was a, a wall that separated the Gentiles from the court of the women and the court of Israel. And if a Gentile went across that barrier, he or she would be executed. The point is that in this temple, there is no wall of separation. It is open to all the nations of the world to come and worship before the Lord. And there's also... Uh, there's no court of the women, there's no court of the Gentiles, there's only the court that goes directly into the temple in which there are also no furniture. There's no menorah, there's no incense table, there's no laver. None of the things that had been part of the earlier temple are, are the furnishings essentially are there. And even the altar in Ezekiel's temple has a significant difference because the temple, the, the altar in the first two temples you had to go up a ramp. In fact, if you look at an a, a aerial picture, really from the ceiling of the Dome of the Rock, there's a large rock outcropping that the Dome of the Rock was built around. You can actually see where the escarpments where the walls of the ancient temple of Solomon and of, uh, of uh, Nehemiah were actually excavated into the stone to create, uh, to level the wall. There's a place that's cut out in what would be the holiest of holies, which is the exact length and width of the Ark of the Covenant, which apparently it's set, and there's an incline that you had to walk up in order to reach it. And the same was true of the Ark or the altar, which was outside the temple. It said you couldn't go by steps as if you were rising up to God. Remember, we talked about the Tower of Babel and how that they built these step pyramids, the idea that they're climbing up to God. It had to be a natural incline, usually of dirt, that you walked up. And the altar itself had to be made of, of rugged stones so that it didn't have a tool. In fact, in the building of the temple itself, it said the sound of a tool could not be heard anywhere within the temple grounds. So the first two temples were built, basically constructed off-site, and then they were put together like a giant jigsaw puzzle after they had been made. And we can even see that in some of the ruins of the temple that are there have been excavated in Jerusalem today. You can actually see where they chiseled on where this piece of the wall or the temple itself was supposed to be placed when it was cut out of the stone originally and carried in, into the location. But one of the things that's interesting is the altar in Ezekiel's temple has steps that the priests rise up. And you may ask me again, why is that the case? And the answer is simple, if you know what it is. But I don't know what it is, so I'm not going to speculate any farther, farther than that. So all of that to simply say there, Ezekiel describes a temple that is built in the last days during the millennium that is unlike any other temple that existed before it. Now, some will say, but doesn't later on he talk about the New Jerusalem and, and all of that? And that yet is different even further so again in the future. Um, which brings me to the sixth thing that is, takes place during the millennium and the thing we're most familiar with. And I refer to it simply as being the restoration of the Garden of Eden. Eden restored. And simply in the sense that the, the earth becomes what it once was. Not just verdant and fruitful, but it's ecologically perfect. 
and the conflict that had marked human history will no longer take place upon the earth until the very end. In fact, in, in, uh, in uh, Isaiah 11, he says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their, their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child will put his hands into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. And that is ultimately will be the character of the millennial period and the earth over which we reign. But that is not the end of the story because there are three final events that are covered in Revelation beginning, first of all, with the final rebellion against God. In verse 7 of chapter 20, it says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Now, I'll answer the obvious question, because many people are saying, well, I thought you said the battle of Gog and Magog happens earlier. And my answer is, it is yes. Gog and Magog is not necessarily exclusively a reference to any one battle as much as it is a characterization of battles that have been waged against God and against his people. And so you need to see it, I think, in that context. But they're gathered from basically the people who are upon the earth. And he says, in, the, in number, they are like the sand of the seashore. So think about it, a thousand ma years of maximum fertility, and the planet repopulates very, very quickly. In fact, the exponential growth of the earth could literally lead, lead to the uh, millions and billions of people over that period of time. And it says, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and desired them, devoured them. So it's kind of an amazing thing to read because we find here God creates the perfect environment and people are always contending, if you just create a perfect world, then people will be happy. They've got all they need. There's no conflict. They've got peace on earth and goodwill towards men and everything works. The toilets flush, the water flows. I mean, life is good and it's wonderful. And yet sin in the nature of man, still is present. And that's where you find that sin is always stupid, and it always reasserts itself, and it has at its very root this nature of rebellion. And so as long as Satan is bound, and the angels have been cast into the abuso, and there's no temptation that being brought other than what men can think up with their own mind, well, life is great. But as soon as Lucifer comes once again and begins to deceive men, as he did Adam and Eve in the very beginning, and has continued to do even up to the very present moment, the world and many of those people immediately turn again in rebellion against God. And what follows is the final judgment. It says at that point, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then he goes on, he says in verse 11, and then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Now, don't put yourself in this judgment if you're a Christian. One of the things that Paul said to the Corinthians, we judge ourselves now that we do not be judged with the world. How do I judge myself? I say, God, I agree with your judgment. I'm a sinner and I can't save myself and I can't remove my sin. Have mercy upon me and send the spirit of Jesus to live and reign in my heart that I might have everlasting life. I've been born again because I begin by confessing my sin, acknowledging my sin. God, I judged myself before the truth of God. So it's amazing when you think about how simple it is to escape the judgments that he speaks of, and yet 
unbelievably, there are people who will not yield and will not surrender. So that the great white throne judgment is a judgment of those who are found and condemned before God. And it's not just simply people who have rebelled during the millennium. He says all the dead from the beginning of human history who have rejected faith in God are brought up and have to stand before the judgment seat and give account of their lives. It says the books are opened. You, you get the image that everything you've ever done is there. And you, those of you who think you're going to argue your case, good luck. You know, it's, it's kind of like watching the video, not just of what you did, but what you thought is all going to be there. And suddenly, it's like people saying, you know, when they go through near-death experiences, I saw my life pass before me. Believe me, that's a terrifying thought in my, in my eyes. I don't want my life and my, my life uh, passing before me. I want to be it under the blood of Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I, want, I don't want to be looking back at what I've done. I want to be looking forward to what is awaiting me in the kingdom. But these people are brought up. And it said the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead were in it. And death, or hell, or Sheol, uh, the grave, the place of the dead. And Hades gave up the dead were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. You do not want to be judged according to what you have done because you're, none of us are good enough to be judged by what we've done. We want to be found innocent. But these people don't have Christ's blood cleansing them from their transgressions. And then it says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, implying that all those who were in death were being cast into the lake of fire. And the, and the lake of fire is the second death so that not only have they died physically, but they've perished spiritually. And it does not describe annihilation or non-existence, but it's talking about an eternal, unchanging condition. For it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How do I get my name into the book of life? Once again, I ask Jesus into my heart. By being born again of the Spirit, God writes my name into his book and he says, you belong to me now. You're one of my children. Which leads us to the final act in the biblical story, which is the final world. I had to use final because I used final in the other two points. Um, but in verse chapter 21, he opens the chapter by saying, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What this implies, I believe, simply is that there is a new, uh, there's a new metric. That, that the world as we know it no longer exists. Because when it goes on to describe even the dimensions of the new Jerusalem, it wouldn't fit any place here upon this planet. It's, it's just such an unbelievably massive structure. What he's saying is there is a reality awaiting us. That's not like the reality that we have. It's grander, more magnificent, and probably, again, indescribable because there is not human vocabulary to adequately describe or frame what that new heaven and that new earth is. All he says is the old order of things, that the gravitational forces, the, the laws of entropy, and all of these things that are the natural forces of our world are no longer the governing rules. That's why when people worship the laws of nature and they talk about mother nature and mother earth, you got to understand your mother's going to die and she's going to pass away. And, and it, it's here, yeah, but it's temporary. It's not forever. There's a new heaven, a new earth with a new reality that has a nature that is beyond anything that we can know or understand. It's that reality that Jesus left to come to this earth and submit himself to the incredible limitations of the world in which we live in. 
It's that world in which he who had no, knew no sin actually became sin on our behalf that we might be saved. It's a concept, think of it for a moment, that you and I can't really get our minds around. Because I'm a sinner from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb. Before I ever had an opportunity to actually engage in sinful activities, I was already marked by sin. And sinfulness was just something waiting for me to get enough energy to carry out. But think about Jesus. He had never tasted of sin. He'd never known a moment of separation from the Father, which is what sin creates. And as he's laboring and struggling in the garden and saying, Lord, if there's any way that this can pass for me, let it pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What was he trying to escape? What did he want to weigh around? It wasn't fear of death. He knew where he was going to go immediately. What he was dealing with is that sin would be placed upon him and he would experience something that he had never known prior to that. And that is that separation. That conversation with God that had been unending was now interrupted because he became the bearer of sin. And yet because he was the perfect sinless sacrifice, we're told that death could not hold him. So that when Jesus appears again, remember the day, behold, flesh and bone? He's got a body like us, but there is a life force inside of him that is not dependent upon natural forces because it's the very essence of God living within that body. I think I made that pretty simple. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I again thank you for the opportunity, the honor of being able to do this over these, this last month. And, um, and even though I look forward to beginning a new series of studies at the same time, Lord, it's, it's, there's somewhat of a sadness to move on from this most wonderful topic. We can say it over and over again that this is the hope of our calling, but there's something about when we really begin to consider and, and begin to imagine the literalness of these things that brings excitement and anticipation and joyfulness to our hearts. For many of us, Lord, who are here and who are listening to this message, we know loss and pain and disappointment and all the things that are the consequences of living in a sin-damaged world. And the more we know that, the more we find our hearts yearning for that eternal reality where there is no longer any sickness, there is no longer any death, there are no tears, there's no sorrow, but that we are for, with you everlasting forever and ever in a new reality, a new order of things where the old order of things will never enter in again. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close together?